Maybe uh, we'll get some rain. It's looking like uh, that's uh, coming. And I know it's forecast in the week too, so that's a blessing. Let me open us in prayer. Father God, we uh, just come to you, uh, Lord, today. We beseech you to be with us, Lord, to be in the midst of the discussion of your very word. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would guide us, Lord, that would open our hearts, Lord, and our minds to not only uh, study what you say, but to seek to apply it, Lord, in a way that brings you glory. And uh, we thank you that this letter was written so that we can turn to it. We bless your holy name in this study. Amen. Okay. So we were, uh, just got into first, excuse me, Second Thessalonians last week, and we were just getting through the first chapter. We made it down to begin at verse 11 today. And uh, what we saw in that chapter uh, was basically uh, Paul is going to be writing a second letter to them. He'd already written one. But in this uh, second uh, chapter, the second letter, the first chapter, it's an introductory chapter. And he's going to, he's exposed us to some features of this young church. They were young and new in the faith, and yet they demonstrated a lot of maturity in how it was they were living. They were, they were in the crucible of trial and they were in a time of heavy persecution, and through it, they were exhibiting an example of real faith, that being uh, that they were enlarging their faith, and they were showing love toward one another, which was ever-increasing. And he commends them for that. He even holds them up as an illustration or example to other churches. We also saw uh, that he points up some things of future uh, with regard to... Uh, destinies of these of the believers there at Thessalonica and also of those unbelievers. In other words, we have the afflicted and the afflictors, and the futures are going to be different. We talked about that. There's a glorious future that awaits believers, and it gives us a purpose for living, and there's a, and there's a, there's a destiny of judgment for unbelievers, for the, for the persecutors, and it's not just punishment. It's eternal punishment, so it really gives us cause to, to stop and think and uh, get what, what Paul is trying to uh, say here to us. And so I think he brings it forth uh, in these last two verses of chapter 1 where, he, where he, he has a prayer for the Thessalonian believers. And I think it applies to us as well. So let me pick that up. In, uh, <clears throat> as I read these last two verses, we're going to, uh, to be exposed to both a purpose of... Uh, of this information before us, and also a goal as we go through it. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 11, and it says, To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have, in verse 11, he says, basically, uh, in view of or to this end, meaning for, for this reason or in order to achieve a goal. So he's going to highlight the need for prayer for the Thessalonians. You know, they were under this persecution, and he has given them some information regarding future things, regarding prophecy. But the purpose of that prophecy was for them to understand the difference in destinies that lay ahead one for the believer and one for the unbeliever. So these future things, these were being made known, and it's not 
when we study prophecy, we need to be careful that we are not just satisfying some sensational curiosity that we have. God has, in this book and in His Word, given us a purpose for letting us know these things. And He expects there to be a, pl a practical application. Now, with regard to the Thessalonians, and for us, He was talking about a life, living a life that's pleasing to God, and that is regardless of our difficulties. That, that's apart from our circumstances. Their circumstances in the world were terrible. They were under severe affliction. As I pointed out, their very lives were at risk. But one of the themes of chapter 1, as I've already said, is that Paul is pointing up some contrasts, contrasts of destinies. Let me just kind of summarize for a second. So, number one, Paul reviewed, he's reviewed the Thessalonians' suffering and that God is able to take care of them in the process. And he points out that the future of believers is a glorious prospect. He holds up to be with the Lord in His kingdom. That is, that glory awaits those who know the Lord that, and, and obey the gospel. That's synonymous. And then number two, Paul has also shown that in due time, not necessarily right now, but in due time, the wicked who seem to be prospering will be punished. And that is to be eternally. So that's just a mind blower. You know, that's a very, very significant judgment. So there is then this huge contrast in destinies. The purpose being for them to see the difference and to see that glory versus judgment, a future hope of glory, is a motivation. It is an exhortation to believers to live in the here and now for Christ. And this is Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians in, in verse 11. And he is praying that God is going to count them worthy of that calling. And that is, that is exemplified by the lives that they live. Now, please note, Paul doesn't ever in any way say that they should be worthy of their salvation. Right? He doesn't say that. No, nobody is. No one's worthy of their salvation. He prays that their lives then are in keeping with what it is they've been foretold in God's Word. Okay, so that is a purpose. Now, verse 12, in all of this, it emphasizes a goal. The goal being that uh, we emphasize that the name of the Lord, Jesus, must be glorified. This is the ultimate goal of our Christian life, of our Christian experience. You know, the world does not realize it, but God's name is a really big deal, a really big deal. You may have, you may be familiar with uh, an initialism that's out there, OMG, OMG. We all heard it. We heard kids say it, okay? And uh, it's not really profanity per se, but I would tell you it's a very profane way, a very uh, negligent way in a trivial way to put the Lord's name out there. You know, the Jews... Uh, in the Old Testament, they had an initialism too. And it was all capital letters, Y-H-W-H. -H. Anybody familiar with that? Yeah. Yahweh, okay. And they took out the vowels and just had the letters. Why did they do that? Out loud? Actually, they respected it so much 
you know, I don't know how it came about. One tradition is that it's based on Exodus 20, verse 7, uh, which is the third commandment that God gave on Mount Sinai. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And they didn't, want to, they didn't want to risk even speaking the name such that they might do this. Okay, So we have this. It's a tetragram. And, uh, you know, when the, when the Bible uh, translators started putting things together, they substituted uh, the word Lord in there. And you'll, you'll frequently see in your printings, the Lord, Lord will be all capital in a kind of a different font from the rest of the text. And that's taking place of the name Yahweh, or we would say Jehovah. It actually comes out from Adonai. Yes. Right. And it, it is from Adonai, which means my Lord. But the first reference I found was in the ESV, uh, a very early trans, uh, translation where they, they admitted that they were substituting something for it. I want to just leave you then with a few verses from Scripture that do speak to uh, the glory of God and His name. Here's here just a few. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That's your life. Okay. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's living. Uh, 1 Peter 4.10 and 11 as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way is that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And finally, Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord, actually Jehovah. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. It's a big deal. Okay. Any comments? I'm going to move on into then the second chapter now, this uh, second chapter, 2 Thessalonians, is actually, uh, we're going to see what caused Paul to pen this letter in the first place, all right? And he is, he's going to be correcting misinformation concerning what we know to be the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and we'll look at that in a bit. Now, as previously stated, Paul, because of a false uh, circulating letter or some oral message, he's written this second letter to the believers at Thessalonica in order to bring to remembrance what it was that he had taught them. And uh, he had taught a lot, a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of future th uh, things, future events. He had taught about the rapture of the church. We saw that in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. He taught of the day of the Lord. We saw that in the fifth chapter. We're going to see he's going to be teaching of the man of lawlessness, uh, specifically here in a minute, and Christ's coming. Speaking of his coming to earth to bring justice and establish his earthly kingdom. Now, it's just sort of a side note. Let me just say that in the process of Paul recording 
this rebuke here or refutation, uh, we're going to have in writing, we benefit as readers from this because we're going to get some points of revelation in this that we cannot directly find elsewhere in Scripture. So it's very good in that way. But I just need to point up, again, the reason we're having exposure to this information, as it was for the Thessalonians, it is for us, and it's for a motivation toward uh, Christian living and have lives worthy of the glories which we are expecting. And in the process, the goal is to glorify God's name. As I'd said, that is what attracts other men and women to the Lord. So let me start in verse 2 of the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians. I'll read those and then we'll discuss. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if uh, from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul is requesting with regard to. Some translations say that he is beseeching the brothers, which implies a greater sense of urgency. Uh, and he asks the Thessalonians not to be easily upset, and I would say also easily taken in uh, by this counterfeit message, this counterfeit letter that was going about. And his appeal to them is in the interest of truth. Don't believe this in the interest of truth. What truth? What truth is he talking about? He gives it to us in the, in the first verse. He holds before them the truth that he had taught concerning what? The coming of the Lord, the coming of Christ, and our gathering to him. Now, clearly, our gathering to him refers to a specific event, the rapture. And we saw that in 1 Thessalonians. Now, the question is, is this, all, is this phrase all concerning one event or two events? Because we have the coming of Christ and the, the gathering to him. Is he talking about just the sequence of that entire thing, meaning when Christ comes and that way we will be gathered to him? Or is he speaking of a, a second event that would be that would be called the coming of Christ, which we would know to be the second coming. Which is it? Or is it both? Okay, so we should just stop here for a minute and think and just kind of think of what has gone before. You know, the Messiah's coming, Christ's coming, is foretold in many places in the Old Testament. And it's a nice full picture of what to expect. It's all laid out there if we go back into the Old Testament. The problem is, when you think about it, so for instance in Isaiah it says, unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government shall rest on his shoulders. So we have a leader that they were expecting to come in physical fashion. We get to, we get to chapter 53 and all of a sudden we've got a suffering servant to be cut off from the land of the living. How do we put all that together? We couldn't, all, all the information that we have on this coming could not be accomplished in one event uh, when we think about it. And so we have two phases of his coming, right? We have a first coming and we understand there to be a second coming. The first coming was his, uh, his incarnation, his earthly ministry. 
sacrificial death for sin, resurrection, and then ascension back to his Father's right hand. The second coming is going to be, he's going to bring justice and judgment and an earthly kingdom for a thousand years, which will lead ultimately into an eternal kingdom. The second coming has two phases also. Uh, we, we know there to be a removal of the church as one part, one phase, and we know a return to earth with the church as another phase. That's confusing. Uh, both events are aspects of and are called the coming of Christ. Anybody find this confusing? I do. Okay. So admittedly, interpretation of this phrase, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ can be confusing, and some of that confusion has to do with uh, three of the main Greek words that are used to translate coming. Now, if you remember, I actually went over this when we were in 1 Thessalonians, and uh, I thought it might be helpful just to briefly review that for a minute before we go on. We're going to review a couple of things before we go on, but this is one of them. So let me go back to my notes on that, the coming of the Lord, the coming of Christ. Uh, there are at least three Greek words in the New Testament which are used to express Christ's return or coming. Those three words are epiphania, apocalypsis, and parousia. The confusion is this. All three are used of Christ coming for His church, the rapture. And they are also all three used for the coming of Christ to earth to establish his, a kingdom, usually we refer to as the second coming. Now, let's look at the individual words. Epiphania. It means a shining through or a breaking through, as in a manifestation or appearing. And from that word, we get our word epiphany. I had an epiphany. And uh, this word is frequently connected to the physical comings of Christ, okay? Uh, then there's apocalypsis, also connected to the physical second coming of Christ. And here we, uh, we see apocalypsis is unveiling or revelation, especially with regard to the glory of Christ, the glory which is Christ. The book of Re Revelation actually is literally means just this, the, the unveiling of Jesus Christ in all His glory. Now the first time that Jesus came to earth, He humbled Himself and He veiled his glory in human flesh. So this was not a revelation, but an epiphany. Uh, however, his glory was seen uh, by at least you know, the three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, and that's found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Now, there also may have been another momentary flash of his, of his glory that uh, we find in the book of John, chapter, uh, John chapter 18, 6, when Judas is bringing the Roman soldiers to him. Something happens that knocks everybody down when Jesus speaks. So that's a possible. But other than that, his glory remained veiled. And I would uh, put forth even after his resurrection, while he was still on earth, his glory was still not totally evident. Okay. Now, as best as I'm able to assess, though, and attain, that after his resurrection, he is indeed always in his glory, unveiled. And that's the way John sees him on the Isle of Patmos. Now the third word, and this one's frequently in association with what we consider to be the rapture. Uh, this word is parousia. And it is a combination word. It comes from uh, para, para, 
which means alongside or alongside of, and ousia, meaning to be. And so it means to be alongside of or to be present, as in, in the presence of. And when you're in the presence of someone, that's considered a coming. And that's frequently attached to the rapture. Okay, so that was clear as mud. Now, <laughs> I'm going to return just so that you see there are different words that we're reading as coming that have different meanings. All right, now, getting back to the text. So this false letter that Paul's addressing, it was teaching that the day of the Lord had already begun and that they, the Thessalonians, were in it, which means they missed the rapture. And this is not what Paul had taught them earlier when he'd been with them. So Paul refutes this message here in chapter 2 and following, uh, whether it came by, and it speaks of a spirit, which is a, would be a prophetic utterance, somebody in church standing up and giving a, which they did back then, giving a prophetic utterance, or by some oral tradition. Somebody brought a message and said, hey, this was from Paul, or, a, or indeed a physical letter which claimed to be written by Paul. That's probably what we're dealing with here. And Paul flatly contradicts this message as being a teaching from God. In other words, he was labeling it a false doctrine. Paul's denying that such a letter, uh, that the teaching of such a letter uh, was real. In other words, that teaching that they were in the day of the Lord. Now, consequently, what he's going to do in the body of this ch second chapter is to show believers that their fears are groundless. And he's going to logically do that by telling things that have to occur before they would be where the letter said they were. Okay? Everybody follow? Now, to understand the error that Paul's uh, correcting here, it'll probably be helpful for me to review what the day of the Lord is. And uh, so we'll all be on the same page. Now, you might remember we looked at this topic in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, and uh, Paul had written there uh, a great deal about it. And mainly his purpose was, it was, it was a chapter following, uh, 5 followed 4. 4 was about the rapture, 5 was about the day of the Lord. And he was showing sequence when he did it. And he was telling the Thessalonians that they were not meant for a day of darkness, which is what the day of the Lord is. Now, it is the day of the Lord is found throughout the Old Testament uh, in prophecy, and it's uh, very closely tied to uh, Jews and the nation Israel. And as any day would be, it begins in darkness, okay? So it begins in judgment. It's a time when, the day of the Lord is a time when God is going to be dealing directly with human sin in a God-rejecting world. Okay, Now, it, it starts with some time period after the removal of the church and beginning of a tribulation period. We're going to look at Daniel here in a second and see that that, that is a seven-year period. And it's going to proceed to the second return, physical return of Christ to the earth to set up his kingdom and his reign. And it's going to culminate in the judgment at the great white throne. That's what the day of the Lord is. So it's somewhere over a thousand and seven years. And I'll tell you how I get that number in a second. But to begin with, it is a corporate judgment, and it will culminate in an individual judgment. So you might want to get your Bibles out and turn to Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 27.
I'm going to comment a little as I go through here just so it's not so completely confusing. This is Daniel writing. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 through 27. He says, Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, Daniel was in deep, deep prayer because he had come upon Scripture from Jeremiah that told him how long the Babylonian captivity was going to be. And we find that in Jeremiah chapter 10. And Daniel understood it was going to be 70 years. And they were rapidly approaching the end of that time. And he's praying for his nation, his, the city Jerusalem, and everything to do with the Jews in order to bring it all up before the Lord. And, his, and he does it with supplications. And he says, and he, I was presenting my supplication before the Lord, Jehovah, my God, in behalf of the holy mountain. That's Jerusalem of my God. While I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, that's the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Wouldn't you love to have that said about you? You are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Listen, okay? And he says, this is Gabriel. Let me get a drink. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Weeks here is like saying twelves or dozens or whatever. It's a number. It's a group of seven. A week is seven things. And he's talking about time. So it's a, a week is a period of seven time, is, is seven time periods. We know from the other contexts that we studied in Daniel at the time and throughout Scripture that these are years. So it's set a period of seven years. He has 70 periods of seven years, 490 years, which have been decreed for his people. Who were Daniel's people? The Jews, Israel and their city, Jerusalem. And what's, what, why have these been decreed? It says here, this is what it will accomplish. Six things. To finish the transgression. Wow. To make an end of sin. To make atonement for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy place. That's basically the end of human history. And this is what these 490 years are to accomplish. Now, he goes on. So... So you are to know and discern, think about and come to an understanding, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, Charlie told us, showed us this decree when we studied Nehemiah. It's a special decree. There's several decrees out there, but only one of them that pertain to what this verse, uh, this passage pertains to. Okay, and it's in Nehemiah. And so uh, what, and the decree is to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Does that mean the temple? It can mean the temple, but that's just part of it, okay? It says he's going to be real clear with what it means. Until Messiah, so this is uh, to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, until Messiah the Prince. So we're given this time period that's going to tell us many things. A beginning, it's got a beginning and an end. There will be seven weeks, that's seven sevens, 49 years, 
and 62 weeks, another 434 years. So he's dividing this time that lays before. It's 483 years. He divides it into two parts. One is the rebuilding, restoration of Jerusalem and the temple, and the other is from the end of that time until Messiah the Prince comes. This is incredible, by the way. Okay. <clears throat> and it will be built again. This is Jerusalem. How will it be built? With plaza and moat. And that means walls. So the walls are important. Uh, even in times of distress. And we saw in Ezra, we saw in Nehemiah the, the stress that the builders were under, and yet they proceeded in the face of all these outside attacks. Okay, then after, so that's 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And then it says, after 62 years, the Messiah will be cut off. Jesus Christ will be cut off. What does that mean? Killed, crucified. He'll be cut off. Out of the land of the living is what Isaiah says. So then we have uh, this whole time period, and it tells us when Jesus will die. Okay, and, and he'll have nothing. And the, Okay, stop there. So we have one flowing time period of 483 years, and it takes us up to the time of Jesus' death. And when you actually, there are people that have worked this out to the day. And it was, you know, it, it culminates in that, that uh, Palm Sunday and the, and the day, four days leading up to Christ's crucifixion. Clearly, it's incredible. You can't, this is incredible. You can't make this up, and, and everybody tries to refute it, uh, all the, all the uh, critics, so-called. Okay. And, so let's go on. But that only accounts for, of the 70 groups of seven, that only accounts for 69 of the groups. We're missing one group of seven, okay? And, and its end will come with a flood. What's end? The temple. Okay, even uh, to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So it's talking about the destruction of the sanctuary. It will, uh, it, and the prince, I left, sorry, I left this part out. And its end will come with a flood, even to the, oh wait. He will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince, I left, that's a pretty important part. The people of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come is another name for the Antichrist, this final world ruler that's coming. The people of that prince, it didn't say the prince, but his people will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That was Jerusalem and the temple. That occurred in 70 A.D. Okay, and 70 A.D. is a long time after the time when Jesus cut off, so there has to have been a stoppage in the time, in the recording of time, in regards to this decree. So the people of the prince, what, what people group destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D.? The Romans. So we would expect then the prince, since those were his people, to come out of that region, which would roughly be Western Europe at this point, Western or some parts of Eastern Europe, since that was a big empire. Okay, so that's why people talk about uh, looking for a leader coming out of Europe. Uh, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. This is important here. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now, who is he? Who is the last he that was given to us? The prince of the people who will come. Okay. He. So this, is, this leader is going to make a firm covenant. What's another name for a firm covenant? A treaty. Maybe a peace treaty. Okay. And it's going to be with the many, probably Israel and all of the people that hate Israel, which is many. Uh, and it's for one week. And what did I say a week was? 
seven years. So a seven-year peace treaty. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice. Who will put a stop to sacrifice? The Antichrist. And he'll put a stop to the grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So in the middle of the week, how long would that be? Three and a half years. This Antichrist is going to do something in the temple. What temple is that? The one they don't have right now, correct. There is no temple, okay? Not yet. And so uh, Jesus thought this was pretty important, though, because he lifts it up in, uh, let me read it, in uh, Matthew 25. In Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16, Jesus was pointing to this very scripture when he said, uh, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's what happens in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet in Matthew inserts, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So this is a big deal. I mean, it's not easy to understand. And I'm, you know, taking all the expository that men have been able to put forth to be able to say what I'm saying right now. But this is not easily understood. And Daniel didn't understand it when he wrote it. So, day of the Lord. Okay. Now, it culminates, as I said, in what is called the great white. The day of the Lord then is going to be removal of the church, this tribulation period, those seven years, Christ returning to earth for a thousand year reign on earth from the throne of David in Jerusalem. And then that culminates in a great white throne judgment, uh, which is individual judgment, and that's God's throne. Therefore, the day of the years, uh, the day of the Lord, as I said, was somewhere over a thousand and seven years because we don't know how long it takes for the Antichrist to get going once the church is removed. Now, currently, the Thessalonians were, and we are, in a day of grace. Okay, We're not in the day of the Lord. We don't think we're in the day of the Lord. Uh, the purpose of Christ in this day is to proclaim His grace and to save people who've put their faith in Christ as their personal Savior. But when the day of the Lord comes, as I said, it's, it's very connected to the, to the, land, to the nation Israel. Uh, there will be divine judgment on the world. And, you know, to give you an example, I've got, I just wrote, there's so many. I wrote Joel uh, 2, 1 through, uh, 1 through 3. This is an example of the day of the Lord. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness. Remember I said it begins in darkness. A day of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. A lot of people are gathering. And there has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. These are these armies gathering, and they're gathering uh, to fight one another, but they ultimately turn their attack against the Lord Jesus when he comes. So, and during that time, Jesus is going to rule. When he, when he does come back, take over, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. Uh, Psalm 2 says, you shall, this is to Jesus, you shall break 
them, that is the peoples of the world, with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Revelation 2.27 says, He and he, Jesus, shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from, from my Father. And he's going to be very just in his rule, in his rule though. Isaiah uh, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, speaks of the justice with which Christ will rule. Listen to this. Then a shoot will spring forth. This is referring to the millennial kingdom itself, after, after the tribulation, after he returns. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of David. That's da uh, excuse me, the stem of Jesse. That's David's father. And a spring from his root will bear fruit. The, spring of the, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That's a sevenfold spirit that we find in Revelation. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This is Jesus. And he will not judge by what his eye sees, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, this is 1 through 10, Isaiah chapter 11. And it goes on and on, but it's glorious. It's glorious. It talks about the wolf and the lamb and all laying down and a child putting his hand in a, in a den of asps and you know, poison steaks. And it's just not that way. All, all things will be right when Christ returns. Okay. So that's the day of the Lord. So it puts us in the right frame. They were not in this. You know, it's easy enough to see that for us. So we're turning to the text. Paul's answer then to this question of whether the Thessalonians were in the day of the Lord is, no, you're not in the day of the Lord. You're not even going to enter into the day of the Lord. The Lord is going to take you out of here before that even begins. Now, so that's setting the stage for what follows in this second chapter. Next, to make his message clear, Paul is going to reveal some things that must occur at the beginning of the day of the Lord. And logically, since these things had not occurred, he's pointing this out to them and to us, since they had not occurred, it demonstrates that the day of the Lord had not begun. Okay, I think we can get through one more verse, and we'll go to verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. So Paul says, it will not come first. What is it? The day of the Lord, right. And, he, and we just reviewed that, and that's what he's speaking toward, and that's what he's uh, refuting in, in, in this chapter especially. But we're told that two things must happen before the day of the Lord and his time of judgment can begin. What were those two things that we just read? the apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness, son of perdition, right? These two things had not happened yet. And we're going to go into some pretty good detail on, on them. And probably this is a good time to stop because once I get rolling, I'm hard to stop, you know. So <laughs> any comments so far or discussion? Any older quiet this morning? Okay. Yes, Anne. Um, when Elijah lay down with the man, he got dreams, and he 
that is not in that scripture that I just read to you. They gave a wolf and a lamb, the lion and lamb. You know, we have to understand that the millennial kingdom was going to be great, but it's not the eternal kingdom. And I think that's where the eternal kingdom comes in. So this thousand-year period, people will still be making their choice, either receiving or rejecting Christ. It's, these will be people living on earth. Yes, we will be back in glorified bodies. All, that, all those who have trusted the Lord will be in glorified bodies, but there will be a whole contingent of people who are living in physical bodies at that time. And though it's a great situation, it's not absolutely perfect. Okay? That doesn't occur till the eternal kingdom begins, and that's after the great white throne. And I think that may be where that other scripture comes from. But there is, it's a similar uh, sort of a situation. But people are going to rebel against the Lord at the end of the thousand years. Satan will, will have enough uh, of a, a cohort to put together a, a rebellion, a small rebellion against the Lord, which will immediately be thwarted. But, and then uh, ultimately we go into an eternal state of our eternal kingdom of the Lord's. Is that any clearer? Okay. Um, Rob, will you close us, please, in prayer this morning? Amen. Thank you.